Orphaned in her early teens and shuttled between foster homes, today's guest found herself suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and anorexia. She was self-harming and suicidal. With all of this trauma in her life, how is it that she is able to be here with us today to share her experiences? Well, we're going to meet today's guest in just a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. And I'm very pleased to introduce today's guest to you, Tatiana Ferrero Puerta. Today, Tatiana is a graduate of Stanford University, New York University, Columbia University. She's taught philosophy and yoga for a decade, and she is the author of Yoga for the Wounded Heart, A Journey, Philosophy, and Practice of Healing Emotional Pain. Tatiana, welcome to Mind Talk. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Brewer. Well, I have to tell you, you know, as I'm as I was reading Yoga for a Wounded Heart and just thinking about all that you had gone through, I would say it's uh, pretty much of a miracle that you're even here today, let alone having gone through several universities and being a teacher of philosophy and yoga. H- how did you get to the practice of yoga? Yeah, I mean, I would also say that there's definitely been times in my life where um, the practice felt miraculous to me um, and where I've sat down and thought, wow, I can't believe that I'm well. Um, I actually came to yoga in a really interesting way, in a way that um, I think is sort of opposite of what tends to happen for people. Um, I first encountered yoga in my academic life studying uh, comparative philosophy of religion as both an undergraduate and a graduate student. And I came to know about it through the, through the readings, right? Through reading texts, texts, comparing texts, talking about it in classes. So I was familiar with the philosophical heritage of the practice, but not so much with the embodied practice. Um, I'd taken classes here and there at the gym but it was really through an experience I had while I was coming out of the hospital um, after uh, a pretty severe hospitalization. I was getting an EKG and a, the cardiologist said to me, you know, have you ever practiced yoga? And at that point, I said to her, yeah, I've, I've taken yoga classes. And she said, no, have you practiced? And I wasn't quite sure what she meant. And she said to me, well, go do yoga for 30 days every single day and see what happens. And that was really the, the beginning of my healing journey was taking on that challenge. And that's when the transformation really started happening for me at much more than just like an intellectual level that it was really embodied. Well, you you don't typically, I don't think, expect to hear uh, a cardiologist tell you to do yoga for 30 days as part of your treatment regimen. Were you surprised? Absolutely. And I don't, I don't think that it was as part of my treatment as much as what I was struggling with at that time was severe panic disorder. That was, that it was so um, debilitating. It was difficult for me to be in any social spaces and giving that I was living in New York city, (laughs) that was a really complicated uh, situation because the city is by its very nature full of people 
Um, and so I think for her, maybe, you know, perhaps she had experience in life or understood the benefits of yoga. I'm not sure that she even recognized the, what it, what it would do to me, how it would radically change my life. Interesting. You explain in Yoga for the Wounded Heart that your teenage years were volatile, to say the least. Can you give us a thumbnail sketch of what your teenage life was like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I find that even now in in my 30s, um, a lot of friends, for example, haven't necessarily encountered death, let alone the death of both parents, which is where I was at by the time I hit 14 years old. Um, So by that time, I'd come to the U.S., experienced extreme poverty with my my mother and my sister. Um, We'd lived in uh, a really difficult part of town where there was a lot of gang violence, so I was definitely exposed to that. And yet the, what was the, really the that was just the tip of the iceberg. Losing my mother um, was extraordinarily difficult, and having only then my sister as my as my family, just the two of us. At that point, we went on to the foster care system, and sometimes it just so happens that there are people who who really shouldn't be taking care of children in in those positions, and that was our predicament where we experienced um, abuse just after having had my mother's death. So it was really the sort of thing where it was one thing after another, after another, after another, where I remember feeling as a child, like, can it really get any worse than this? And I remember having this thought of, well, my dad died. There's no way my mom's going to die. Orphans. And I talk about this in the book. Orphans are just in movies, right? Um, And then it just like even that happened. So it was really this sense of everything being taken away from me and having no sense of control whatsoever and really being at the hands of of situations that I didn't have the tools to manage or really the understanding of, of life to be able to comprehend or to frame in any way that was anything other than, than painful and confusing. When, um, when you were in foster care, were you with your sister or were, had the two of you been separated? We were together for a little while and then we got separated. And were you ultimately adopted? No. So did you actually age out of foster care? I did, right. So as soon as I turned 18, I left. And how prepared were you for your life at that point? Well, I think that given everything that I'd been through, I was probably more prepared than the average person would have been because in many ways, my sister and I felt like even though we were in foster care, we had a roof over our heads, but that's about it. Uh. We didn't have emotional support. We didn't have, um, we didn't have any sort of home um, other than the actual physical structure <laughs> of that house. Um so in many ways, we felt like we were on our own. Um, and so in that way, I felt like that I was prepared and I did and I did well. And I was very grateful to the the system of the university system in the United States, the way it works, because in my own in my home country, living in a college is really, really rare. Um, but I was able to go off to college and just live 
at my dorm in college. And so that made it far more feasible had that not been the system in this country. Um, but emotionally, I was in no way, shape or form <laughs> ready to to be sort of on my own or to really make sense of everything that had happened to me. And so what I did is that I actually didn't. I didn't own up to it. I didn't look at it. I just pretended like that didn't happen. And, uh, and I committed myself really, really fervently to my academic endeavors, which is how I was able to graduate from Stanford at the top of my class and just be incredibly focused academically because I didn't want to look at my, at my life or at my suffering. So if there were a way for you to close your eyes to that and focus on what was ahead instead of behind, that was the way you survived. Absolutely. But it was pure survival mode. Right. And unfortunately, simply not thinking about something doesn't make it go away, and it certainly doesn't allow you to heal. Tatiana, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, I'd like to continue, and um, I'd like you to tell us, you referenced your home country. I'd like for you to tell us a little bit about your home country. Folks, we're going to take a break. My name is Pamela Brewer. You are listening to Mind Talk, and I'm having a conversation with Tatiana Ferrero Puerta, who is the author of Yoga for the Wounded Heart, A Journey, Philosophy, and Practice of healing emotional pain. We'll be right back. Tatiana, tell us about your home country. Uh, so I'm from Bogota, Colombia, um, and Colombia is a beautiful country. Um, you know, so many Latin American co- uh, countries are just so full of joy and warmth and the food and the music. So I definitely grew up in that uh, my early childhood was filled with memories of, you know, the, just this really inviting, caring atmosphere uh, with so much music and so much food. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say that those early positive affirming experiences were part of what helped you to survive? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, sometimes I wonder, had I not had the baseline of having my experiences at home with my parents when they were alive, um, and even with my mother up until I was 14 years old, that and I, I really speak a lot about my mother in the book and what an incredible woman she was. Um, that had I not had that as a foundation, I wonder if I would have known that I could come back to health, right? To wellness, to loving life, the way my mother, um, really demonstrated for me, even after the loss of her partner of 20 years, 20 years, that's an extraordinary loss. Yeah. I mean, I don't feel like she ever fully recovered, Mm. um, and she never remarried, but, you know, it was, that was, that was her love, you know. <laughs> how, how old were you when you came to the United States? So I came right after my father's death. I think I was about nine and a half. Okay. And did you come directly to New York or did you stop off somewhere else? 
No. So we lived in California at that point in the Bay Area. Um, And then and then I stayed in California until I finished college. Okay. At which point I came to New York for graduate school. Okay. And you say very early on um, in Yoga for the Wounded Heart, and I quote, I've known darkness powerful enough to confuse you out of your own identity. What, what do you mean by that? Well, in the, at the bottom, right, in the, the spaces of really not knowing whether or not life was worth continuing for me. Um, I often wondered who I was and if that mattered um, and really had this continuing sense of sort of of confusion of, is this really happening? How the, the consistent issue that I dealt with at that point in my life was that I looked around and I saw the way people did all sorts of things. And in my head, took things for granted, simple things like communicating with one another, getting on a train, just like having a beer at a, at a bar or like being in a, in a social situation at a party. And to me, what kept coming up was, well, do these people not know that life is so fragile? Well, how is everybody ignoring this very clear existential alarm that is going off in my experience? But I didn't understand how people could be so relaxed <laughs> and so, you know, just live their lives so freely. Um, what I didn't understand then is that I was really living in trauma. Yes. And that my nervous system was really shot um, and that I couldn't, it felt as though anything that I experienced was shaking um, was sort of vibrating this already very sensitive nerve. I was like a raw nerve. So anything that I experienced was far more um, felt or intense than it would somebody who has a healthy nervous system and, and a healthy attitude towards death and towards life and towards relationships. Um, and so my experience was so, and you know, also having the background in philosophy and, and studying a lot of philosophy, really asking these very existential questions like who am I doesn't matter and getting into these mental loopholes of, of just that ultimately ended in darkness for me. Well, it certainly sounds like you had enough experiences in your life, enough losses, enough challenges that depression certainly would have made a great deal of sense. It would be impossible to imagine that you weren't depressed given all that you had experienced. Right. Yeah, and again, not having enough um, of an experience to recognize that that isn't that isn't normal. When there's years and years and years of traumatic experiences, then the then the normative way of understanding any positive experiences, well, it's going to get taken away also. And so, what the yoga practice gave me was the ability to recognize that that in itself is a way of framing reality. And so the, what yoga did for me was really allowed me to take two steps behind myself and question, well, what are the assumptions here, right? As opposed to taking everything that I was feeling uh-huh. and thinking at face value. You know, uh, just the word and, and the concept of yoga today is is very much a part of the social lexicon. But you say mm-hmm. yoga isn't 
yoga in this book entitled Yoga for the Wounded Heart. So help me out. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that one of my missions is to really give people an understanding of what yoga actually is. When we look at the term historically, when we look at the term etymologically, it's not about downward facing dog. And as you say, yoga isn't yoga. It's actually the third chapter in my book. Um, when you ask a person on the street, you know, what's yoga? They'll say, usually, you know, it's stretching or it's breathing or it's getting doing handstands or fancy poses. But really, yoga is none of those things. And the physical practice, historically speaking, didn't come till a long time, hundreds of years later, after the actual texts were written. Um, so the modern practice of yoga, as we know it, is a very new phenomenon. Instead, what yoga actually is, it's a, a system of understanding of our, our experience. In particular, it's about understanding that at any given point, we're actually always united, and that the experience of suffering occurs only with a perception of separation. So yoga claims that when we are in the wounded heart, that when we are hurting, it's because we've experienced that we are no longer part, um, that we're apart from whatever it is that we long for, and that creates suffering. And yet the paradox is that that isolation is really just an experience, but it's not necessarily true. So it's real, but it's not true. <laughs> and so it's this, it's this interesting paradox where, for example, I, when I give talks, um, I often ask people, you know, raise your hand if you've ever felt really deep suffering and pretty much all the hands go up. And then I say, raise your hand if when you feel like you're in this deep suffering, you feel really alone and everybody's hand goes up again. And so we have this experience of being alone and yet we're all having the same experience. And so in a sense, that's not, it's not that isolation is not the truest uh, picture. And so what yoga is, is a remembrance of really our, our connectedness at any moment. And in particular, when we can hone the mind on presence, there's an insight that arises about our existential situation that isn't really accessible when we're constantly sort of mulling over our, our, our stuff or future tripping <laughs> or um, going over our to-do list all the time. But instead, it's about really apprehending any experience with an open-handedness, with an open-hardness, and really just saying, okay, well, what's here right now? And it's that continual inquiry that brings us home and that ultimately is very healing because it's an integration of that sensation of separation. So, you know, it, as you're describing it, it sounds like it's more like a meditation practice than an exercise regimen. Is it any of that or am I missing the point completely? No, you hit the nail on the head. And in fact, when you look at the text that I, that I study in my book, the philosophical aspect of my book looks at the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, which are generally considered the, the, the most dominant text in yogic philosophy the pr the primary practice of that text is concentration. Um, it's not, there are only two sutras or two sentences in the entire text 
dedicated to physical postures. It's really about learning how to work with the mind and really learning to pay attention to where our attention goes at any given moment. And so we have, um, we have this attention that, you know, sort of the Buddhist saying it's the monkey mind and there isn't a lot of social awareness on how or the importance of why, why we should learn to really be more mindful <laughs> with our mind states. Most of us hang out in mental places. We don't even really know where we are um, or we don't pay attention to where those are. But really, according to yoga, that's the key to our internal freedom is learning about what goes on in our heads. So yes, absolutely about, I, I think classically speaking, it would be concentration, but really that's, uh, that's the entryway to meditation. So as you're talking about yoga and the way that you've just described, you know, I think about the yoga mats, the yoga pants, the yoga shoes, the <laughs> yoga, you name it, there's a yoga attached uh-huh. to it. And it sounds like none of that is really necessary. No, I don't think that it is. Although, you know, the way that I see it is that yoga was framed this way in, in our culture because we are a very materialistic culture. Not that don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean that we have, we love stuff, (laughs) you know, Western culture is very much about the things that we own um, and the bodies that we have. It's just the way that we sort of see the world. And I'm not so sure that it's an, uh, that it's a quote unquote bad thing that that's the way that yoga came here because it gets people through the door. And I think that when people practice an asana practice, that, by nature, that practice is about, well, where is your breath? As you're doing this posture and transitioning to this other posture, where is your attention? And when people do that 5, 10, 15, 50 times, things begin to change inside. And when things begin to change inside, the way in which we see our world changes. And so I think this is the experience that people are, happen- are, are having, and then they're realizing, wait a minute, what is this yoga thing? <laughs> exactly. Tatiana, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, you say that motherhood has been your primary yoga. I want you to explain that to us. Sounds good. <laughs> Folks, don't go away. I'm Pamela Brewer. You're listening to Mind Talk. We'll be back in just a moment. Tatiana, you say that motherhood is your primary yoga. Help me. What does that mean? (laughs) So these days, um, you know, I think most mothers would agree with me that when you have that child, everything really changes. And, you know, we hear these words, but they really become very real (laughs) the moment a child enters our lives. And I'm the proud mother of a two-year-old, <laughs> and he <laughs> has become my, my primary yoga very much in the sense that, uh, especially in those early days of, of infancy, 
they require so much attention and so much presence. And also, I think it's so beautiful with maybe the hormonal changes that are going on with breastfeeding and the oxytocin that we are for this moment in our lives, unlike so many other moments in our lives, that our biology is really geared towards being there <laughs> and towards being really present, present, that it actually feels so good to do nothing but just hold this tiny little being. Um, you know, and then as they get a little older, now I'm in the toddler phase. <laughs> so it's definitely, you have to have a, a set of eyes in the back of your head. All the <laughs> time. Really, all the time. <laughs> and constantly be really aware of of their needs. And it, it, it requires a, such a tuning in. And I think motherhood is such an important yoga. Um, and then also, it's very much like what we were talking earlier, if we have an understanding of how it functions. Um, then it makes the task so much more full of ease, right? So if I know that I'm get, if I'm feeling frustrated, well, maybe I can come back and say, well, why am I feeling frustrated? What's this here? Is is this actually real? Like, what's what's the separation I'm perceiving? Oh yeah, I'm not really connecting with my child at this moment. Now, what can how can I connect? And so it becomes more of an inquiry as opposed to a task that that has to get done along with the laundry and the dishes <laughs> and everything else that is motherhood. So, again, as you talk about it with us today and certainly as you talk about it in your book, the practice of yoga is indeed something so much more than a couple of exercises that you learn how to do and then you're kind of done. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a way that we can look at life. And I think that it's a set of tools that can really help us um, work with our, our, our woundedness, because everybody doesn't have those types of necessarily super deep wounds, but we all experience suffering. And knowing how to really reframe it and knowing how to work with it is such an important skill and such an important set of tools. That again, that's really my mission with my book is to say, look, this is this is what yoga is. It by no means, I think, has a monopoly on truth. Um, but I do think that it's a really important set of tools that helped me and that I feel can help a lot of people. Tatiana, the Yoga for the Wounded Heart, how, how do folks find out more about your book and also about the things that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. My, on my website, I have all the information, and it's yogafortherwoundedheart.com. Okay, yogafortheWoundedHeart.com. That is the website for Tatiana Ferrero Puerta, who is the author of Yoga for the Wounded Heart. And again, today's guest, thank you so much, Tatiana, for your study and for your moving out of the trauma that you experience, putting the energy into your own survival, and then bringing that energy forth to share with the rest of us. Thank you, Tatiana. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate um, you having me on your show. And folks, thank you for joining me on this edition of Mind Talk. It is brought to you daily as an educational public service, and it is not intended to replace any work that you may choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is available on demand by going to my. 
N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. And I'd love to know where in the world you are as you're listening to Mind Talk. So do email me at Pamela at MindTalk.org. That's Pamela, P-A-M-E-L-A. And again, that's M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. Be sure to go to the Mind Talk homepage to sign up for our weekly free giveaway and folks remember always if it's unacceptable it's unacceptable you take care Thank you.